0: The Pellicle Podcast is supported by our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support our website, podcast and magazine, please visit patreon.com forward slash pellicle mag. Hello, I'm Matthew Curtis, and welcome to the Pellicle podcast. Pellicle is a magazine devoted to exploring the worlds of beer, wine, cider, food and travel, and the joy we find within these cultures. In our show, we like to dig into the stories of the people, products and places that make the food and drink we love so vital. Our aim is to bring you folks closer to these cultures through our shared enthusiasm, all while hopefully bringing these worlds closer together in the process. Today's show is part of a series of panel talks recorded at 2019's Fine Fest, the annual festival held by Fine Ales at the home of their brewery and family farm in Cairndow, Scotland. Fine Ales have been huge friends and supporters of Pellicle since day one, and it was a privilege to be invited to host these talks. We were gutted not to be able to return to the Glen in 2020 due to the pandemic, but are already relishing returning in 2021 with gusto. You already know how much we love beer, wine and cider here at Pellicle. Something that also fascinates us, however, are hybrids. Co-fermentations of beer with wine grapes, for example, or blends of beer and cider, which is sometimes referred to as graph. These boundary-pushing beverages aren't just incredibly delicious, but within them also lies potential. Too often, the worlds of beer, wine and cider are viewed separately, but I see them as three cards within the same deck. Hybrids provide each of these worlds with an opportunity to understand each other and hopefully bring them closer together in the process. Take this episode's panellists, for example. Johnny Mills of Mills Brewing has caused a stir among hardened beer collectors with his incredible beer-cider hybrids produced in collaboration with cider maker Tom Oliver. At Duration Brewing in Norfolk, head brewer Derek Bates is inspired to use seasonal produce within his beers and has previously made a great must-infused New England IPA with his friends at Verdant Brewing in Cornwall. And before he moved on from Beavertown, my Pellicle co-founder Johnny Hamilton was creating mixed fermentation beers incorporating grapes from Chapeldown Winery in Kent. He even got to pour them in California at Firestone Walker's Terroir project, a festival of beer wine hybrids. In this panel discussion recorded at FineFest 2019 we dig into the world of hybrid fermentations discussing their potential, who their prospective audience is and why oh why are they so delicious. Now it's time to sit back relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Hello everybody, Hello. Oh, that's, that's, everyone's, everyone's had a beer now and is feeling <laughs> a lot more chipper. The first talk, no one had had a beer yet and everyone was a bit like, <laughs> oh yes, Kevin had a bloody Mary. Um, welcome to the Meet the Brewers panels, uh, my name is Matt Curtis, um, I am the co-founder and uh, one of the editors of a new magazine called Pellicle. Uh, on the panel actually is my, my business partner, Johnny Hamilton. Um, who is here, at, this is a, a panel on hybrids and he is indeed a hybrid because he is both representing Pellicle and he's going to be talking about some of the beers he makes for the Beaver Town Tempest project because uh, he does a lot of uh, stuff, interesting stuff with, uh, with grapes. Um, uh, so this talk is called Hybrid Theory, it is named after the Linkin Park album, yes thank you very much. Um, we'll be maybe singing that on, if they do Masioki again, a bit of, bit of Linkin Park, <laughs> that'd be great. Um, <laughs> Everyone's up for that. And I, I, uh, sorry, if I keep, sorry if I keep stuttering because I am something of a beer and cider hybrid myself uh, after, after last night enjoying some of the fantastic uh, ciders uh, on the, the right hand side of the bar there. There's some really quite incredible stuff. Uh, that I uh, might, might have oversampled last night. So we're going to talk today uh, about um, a really... It's a frontier part of brewing, and it's one of the parts of brewing that really interests me. Uh, hybrids, and when I talk about hybrids, I talk about wine and beer hybrids, or cider uh, and beer hybrids, or even, in Bates's case here, ca- carrot and uh, beer hybrids. Um, but this, it, what excites me about these styles is how... Um, The part of the industry that really excites me is where it is bordering with low-intervention cider and natural wine, because these uh, drinks are very similar to to a lot of beers, especially sour or or farmhouse or wild or spontaneous beer. And there's a lot of people in beer who are then seeing great natural wine and cider and going, I want to try that. But I don't see a lot of people who drink wine or who drink cider go, I really want to try this beer. Maybe in cider, but certainly um, trying to get wine people excited about beer, like, like a beer lover is, is difficult. But these, these folks are just some of the people making beers that are capable of doing that. And also they're incredibly delicious. They go really well with food. They look great in a restaurant setting because they might be in a nice 750ml bottle. Uh, so it really is one of the most interesting, exciting parts of, of uh, beer for me right now. So I'm just going to introduce my panel. Um, so on the far side, we've got Johnny Hamilton of Pellicle in Beavertown. I've uh, got Johnny Mills uh, of Mills Brewing, closest to me in the middle we've got Derek Bates, uh, or just Bates, uh, from Duration Brewing. Um, welcome. Thanks guys Thank you. You, for being on the panel. Um, before we talk about your beers and what, you, what you're making, uh, you've just heard from me why I'm so excited about this, but I want to ask each of you in turn, starting with you Johnny, why people should be excited about this frontier of, of brewing, these hybrids. Uh,
1: good question. Yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, what excites me about working with uh, the apples and the cider world that we're kind of delving into is kind of different flavors and aromas uh, and, and particularly like the structures that you don't really have access to with, with, with beer. So like with cider you get tannins and acids and things that we you can't really make with beer. So it kind of opens up this whole other world of, of tastes that you can kind of work with. Yeah. Um, Uh, And then just a whole different world, like the the fermentation. We got really inspired by uh, the kind of cider way of thinking about fermentation, uh, which is similar to kind of lambic-style fermentations with you know the world's indigenous yeast, uh, potentially bacteria as well. Um, Yes, and just kind of welcoming in the kind of natural natural environment kind of welcoming in the outside rather than like all you know making ales and lagers and things you're trying to like sanitize and exclude the environment effectively so it's yeah, like that yeah. kind of ch- completely changing your, your mindset to kind of welcome in nature yeah effectively um, uh, including like the, the, the you know, seasonality of the temperature outside and you know we don't we don't refrigerate or uh, temperature control, anything really. So it's kind of welcoming in that uh, the differences that, that, will, that will that will bring to us. Um,
0: and we're, we're in the perfect setting to talk about that kind of beer because we are actually in a farmhouse, to, so we can talk about farmhouse beers. Bates, what's so exciting for you about hybrid beers?
2: Uh, th- oh shit, that's loud. <laughs> Christ. Uh, to me, hybrid is uh, the same sort of thing of hybrid vigour. It makes everything stronger. You're uh, always pushing what you're doing and making that style of beers anyway. And anytime you introduce anything new, then it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And you kind of go into an unexplored territory. Um, also we're at like being on a farm that's mainly agriculturally driven, you change with the seasons. Um, that's to me, what we're going to focus on with a lot of our beers, our saisons and stuff like that is to use the agriculture that's around us. Um, Cause Unbeknownst to most people that go into grocery stores, shit does grow in seasons. Um, it, it doesn't. You don't get strawberries in December. Don't do it. Um, so the thing is, is we'll try to be focused on that. You, I say never, but maybe um, we'll probably never use like fruit purees and stuff like that in our beers. We'll use what is seasonally available there from either our own farm or stuff surrounding us. Um, and to me, that just drives the focus forward because four main ingredients with beer and most of them are agriculturally driven. Yeah, that's uh, very true. Beer, beer is an agricultural product from, from beginning to
0: end. Uh, Johnny, what's so excited about hybrids for you? You're someone who's also very into to your wine and cider as well. So what, what uh, about that side of it really interests you?
3: Um, for me, it's about trying... For just the pure kind of... Uh, brewing aspect it's you know been brewing a lot of different beers for a few years now it's quite nice to see to ferment and work with other products and to see what happens so the, when we were asked by firestone Walker a few years ago to do the terroir project it was like perfect it was awesome because uh which was working with 50/50 uh grape grain uh, hybrids it's just like i don't know what i'm going to get out of here and also it's going to change uh, every year because the harvest is different with brewing we're used to working with i mean hops obviously change and barley changes but we're working with quite somewhat fixed products uh you know i know that whenever i order malt it's going to be to a certain standard i know when i order you know the harvest is fairly you know consistent we get grain that ferments and has a certain fermentability that's fairly standard whereas the harvests you know working with that for the first time the first year i did it, it was an awful harvest for wine in 2017 and then going back a year later and seeing how that was probably the, one of the best harvests for UK wine in a long time to see that that's like seeing uh, how the products actually uh, it's being more connected I guess than than normal as a brewer because like we get hops from America I've never been to to Yakima I've been to UK hop fields and well you know when we're get at beaver time we're getting mainly american hops and you know it's you kind of lose that connection with doing it with whenever we've done beers with uh with grapes or cider or even with sake yeast, we're kind of interacting a bit uh, more with the, the product. So for me, it's like the unknown is what excites me.
0: Fantastic. Uh, so I'm bringing it back to Johnny Mills. I made a mistake of putting two Johnnies on the, on the panel. Um, Johnny M, uh, be, you're working with Tom Oliver, um, who, you know, the most influential cider maker in the UK in, in my
1: eyes. How did that relationship come about? Uh, it came about through a mutual friend, uh, a guy called Pete Tiley, who owns uh, a pub called the Salutation Inn in, in Gloucestershire. Uh, we ended up living above. Um, uh, when we were looking at putting mills brewing together, uh, I'd met him and he'd built a little two and a half barrel uh, kit out the back of the pub. Uh, and I, we were looking for a premises and somewhere to make somewhere to make work. We didn't have any money to buy a brew kit or anything, so I uh, got in contact with him to ask if we could uh, make work there. Uh, and Tom Oliver actually had been talking to him about making some kind of cider-beer hybrid. Uh, um, but Pete uh, basically said, like, I don't think I'm up for this. You guys, though, should do this. Um, uh, and then, yeah, after you know chatting to Tom, um, I was like, this has to be, I have to make some kind of Lambic-esque wort for this. Let's do a tur- like a turbid mash, which is the way that Lambic producers make a uh, kind of more uh, turbid
0: mash is when you use a lot of wheat, uh, unmalted wheat, isn't it?
1: They, yeah, they typically yeah, use uh, yeah, raw wheat, and then uh, the mashing schedule means you don't turn everything into simple sugars. You leave some carbohydrates and things, which allows a kind of mixed culture of <laughs> wild yeast and bacteria to, uh, to survive over a longer period uh, of time in a barrel, kind of you know, one or two years, maybe. Um, uh, so yeah, I thought we. When I knew it was going to be all Wild East and doing the barrels and the kind of, you know, immediately your mind goes to this is like this lambic in the beer world, so let's do a turbid mash. So that's what we did. Really, we made a 400 litres of wort, pumped it into uh, a plastic tank in our van, uh, and then drove it up the M5 to Hereford, like <laughs> hoping, uh, hoping you didn't pass any traffic officers um, as we were like low riding down the uh, motorway and. Uh, yeah, and then it, you know, we filled it straight into some barrels that he had emptied of cider recently that still had the, the, the Lees, the Wild yeast culture. Um, Lees is a nice way of saying dregs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and then that was it. And then we it a it was
0: Fox Whelp uh, cider, yeah. uh, I believe, wasn't it? And that's pick was the result.
1: Exactly, yeah. So, it was, so he there uh, we, we co-fermented slightly different portions. I think there were three barrels. Uh, one had kind of three quarters wort to one quarter apple juice, uh, and then like a half, half, and then a, you know the other uh, other way around. And because uh, we didn't know how it was going to go, effectively, this is kind of it's nice isn't it? Um It was kind of unknown territory. Li-
0: Live tweeting. <laughs> oh,
1: oh. <laughs> That's So we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't know how it was going to go. But, you know what? You know, it was we, we had none of us had tasted anything that had been done like that before. So we kind of we hadn't we didn't decide what we were going to do with it. We just we'd see what the beer slash cider hybrid would turn out like in each barrel, and go from there. And it uh, it turned out that we we ended up blending all three barrels together, uh, and also blending in a tiny bit more uh, apple juice from uh, from a fourth barrel, I think, just to up the acidity a little bit. Um, uh, the, the interesting thing we saw in those fermentations is that. Despite it's completely wild, the, the barrel that was mostly wort wasn't sour at all. A year later, you know, it's a mixed culture. It's, uh, I think the vast majority of the, the lees are, are yeast, which don't make the acidity. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, yeah, all, pretty much all the acidity in but the resulting beer was uh, the, the, the apple acids, mm-hmm. rather than the lactic acid that we get in sour beers. Uh, so that was an interesting insight.
0: What's the biggest lesson you've learned from working with someone like Tom?
1: Patience. Extreme patience. Uh, yeah uh, and and minimal intervention i think uh, no as minimal faff uh, and fuss as possible like it goes in a barrel you put an airlock in it and you just forget about it you leave it um, you know don't don't take samples as, as often you know as you maybe like uh, you know it'd be interesting to go in there every month and take a little sample but every time you open it up oxygen will be getting in and potentially spoiling the, the product so uh, yeah and uh, yeah minimal and inter- intervention in terms of uh, allowing the weather in, effectively, um, not doing not doing anything else, and having having it really being of that place. But, mm. yeah.
0: It's interesting because uh, when I went to visit Tom, he had a bottle on his shelf, and uh, and I asked him what what why that bottle was there. What's he waiting for? And he just said, "Time, it'll be it's ready when it's ready," and yep. he was just wa- just watching it. And it was your next collaboration. Oh, okay, time. yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'd like to talk more about that project and what's coming up in, uh, in a little bit. Uh, Bates, you produced the New England IPA with Verdant uh, called If We Must, and you used Great Must, um, and, which is very interesting to, to take a really modern style but then hybridise it like that. What was the thinking behind making that beer?
2: Got to make some sales, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, uh, I don't know, trying shit loads of them in the States because they're always well, uh, kind of five can you years give us some ahead. examples? Uh, Trillium dialed in is a big one. Um, Hill Farmstead can't remember the name of theirs, but they use a lot of uh, grape must from around Vermont and stuff, and the grapes that actually are what's called racy or foxy, like it's not your standard grapes that you make uh, classic noble noblest yeah uh, sort of stuff with because it's like well, what do you do with these grapes that grow fine? Um, and that's a lot of U.K. grapes now because everybody thinks it's got to be grown in a France, it's got to be grown in northern Italy, it's got to be in Spain. Um, and the UK's making amazing grapes, um, amazing wines. So we really wanted to sort of showcase that as well. Um, when we were discussing it, we were thinking, you know, where we get the grapes from. And to me, hands down, it had to be from the U.K. Um, so we have Polygon Uh, Vineyards, which is down near where Ferdinand is from and everything, and we put those uh, grapes into it. Uh, And it's just kind of showing the different side of the juicy, hazy sort of thing. It still had Galaxy Hops, uh, Ella and El Dorado, but it's very evident in those grapes. You can taste it throughout the entire beer. Um, And a lot of people would put it on the hot side, usually in the whirlpool, because... Anything that's grape skin contact is a bit iffy. Mm-hmm. Um, bacterium in it, uh, wild yeast, you never know. Uh, but to me, it was like, you got to put it in the fermenter. It's got to develop out with that yeast in there and leave that grape flavor, aroma, taste to mingle with the hops. So we did it, went really well. Um, and th- we took the chance on putting it in the FV because they sell their stuff so fast. We were like, well, It's not gonna hang around more than a couple of months. So uh, did it again last year. And to me, you can evidently taste the difference in the year. Uh, The first time we did it, it was much more unctuous, juicy, um, a higher finishing gravity because the summer that those grapes were grown, we had had a lot more rain. So they were a little fatter, a little less sugars to ferment. This past one, it finished up much drier, much faster. Because of those sugars, we had that really hot summer, um, so you, that just shows right there that like you know you're dealing with something that's not same. You're in, you're out, and you got to move with the seasons. Yeah, I was reading
0: that the 2018 English uh, grape harvest for wine was so good that the, some of the French bodies are actually considering reclassifying English wine and like moving it up in in their estimations because of the quality of the grapes and the wines. Thanks to that relentless summer we had. Uh, last year. Uh, base. you also did a a beer and carrot hybrid. Um, What was the thinking behind that beer? Uh,
2: It's once more, that's just shining and highlighting UK grown stuff. Um, That's my whole thinking and basis is I don't want to just buy the puree that everybody can buy. You go on, you get like Oregon fruit puree. Anybody can do that. Um, I wanted to find things that are local to us. Um, So actually, I looked for carrots in our region in Norfolk, where we're at, but uh, the farm that was closest to us that grew carrots, they were like, well, sorry, we had our last harvest, and they're kind of all spoken for gone. Um, So he was like, but I got a friend up near, around Liverpool at Royal Oak Farms that they are having a bit of a late harvest there with theirs, and I wanted something that was heirloom, Um, because once again, Carrots aren't orange. Um, that's a thing that's introduced by the Dutch uh, because they grew really well and they grew really easily. So uh, we wanted to use purple haze carrots, which are kind of native to around here. Um, and then I went and picked up 300 kilos of them, threw them in the back of our car, drove up and brooded it at Cloudwater, fucked up every bit of their equipment. <laughs> <laughs> um, busted the mash, the louder, and the whirlpool. <laughs> All in one day. Um, <laughs> bet that was.
0: I bet you had to clean it up, Jay, didn't you? No, no Al actually had to climb in. <laughs> Jay left a message
2: for Al. Um, we we usually serve it for the
1: brew kettle world-wide day. We wrote a message on the brew kit: CIP not done, carrots in kettle.
4: <laughs> Talk <draw> to Mark. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I learned a lesson, so now I know where I'll put carrots the next time we do it. be straight and louder. I won't even mess with the mash and move it through pumps. Um, But, yeah, I just want to, like, shine a light on everything that's made within reason in the UK. Um, uh, I love using things outside of the UK and everything, but, you know, like, let's shine a light on small farms and people that are, you know, working hard for it. Looking forward to next year's asparagus grisette. (laughs) Actually, I want to do one with pea shoots and... uh, maybe met that's likely grown from us so awesome look forward to that uh, johnny
0: uh at beaversound you've worked with chapel down winery in sussex for a couple of years now what's that experience
3: been like for you uh yeah so in 2016 i think we got approached by Firestone walker um who were putting on this first this terroir project at the time it was just like an email chain called uh, grape and grain project they hadn't really figured it out but jeffers and jim uh, really wanted to kind of uh, see what happened. they have been doing a bit of hybrid work themselves and they thought, wouldn't it be cool if uh, we did this project and had this exact same criteria. So it had to be the same uh, 50-50 kind of, or 40, 49% grape juice, 51% wort, uh, had to be made with a certain percent of wheat. And there was a bit of parameters that had to be exactly the same, but they invited seven breweries from... Uh, Different parts of the states, so Jester King from Texas and Trillium from uh, Jester King
0: are growing their own grapes now, aren't they?
3: Yeah, and uh, then they had Trillium, and they had basically people from mainly Amer- from America, and then they had a Garage Project from New Zealand, and us. And uh, the the main criteria was the grapes had to be grown from a hundred mile radius from the brewery. So it was really nice to be to be asked. And uh, the problem for us, while we work with Chapel Down, one of the many reasons is. Uh, Trying to find people who could give us that volume of uh, juice, especially in 2017. Yeah, because
2: uh, we asked a couple of people in the first year, it was like, uh, "Yeah, we'll entertain the thought." And the second time, it was like, "You can go fuck yourself." Like <laughs> we need,
3: we need those grapes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so in perspective, so the first year uh, we've been doing it for like with working with Forty Hall Vineyards in uh, in Enfield in London, so community allotment and vineyards and they vinify their grapes down in kent with davenport and we've worked with them before just to take the skins because obviously they make sparkling style wine they're not using the skins, so the pinot noir skins and stuff we can have and that's cool you can kind of do fun stuff with that and that's how we got started with uh the hybrid thing um but getting juice was the hard part so in perspective the first year 2017 when i went to chapel down to help them with their harvest uh to get the skins uh we hired a van and we were going to drive it down to uh for, for them, and about we should have about nine thirty and about ten thirty. They were like, we can you can go you can drive the and I was like, there's only like two hundred kilo in the back of the the van. They're like, yeah, they're all like uh, f- they got they got frost. They got everything. The grapes were either too t- too small or there was a lot of like basically we're picking the grapes and mo- more grapes were going to the compost than they were going to get uh, pressed. Just like really bad uh, in- infection. Uh, ne- last year we were there, um, sit the next harvest, and we filled up two vans and like to the to the capacity. We were having to weigh every single uh, box and make sure we weren't over the legal limit of the van. And they could have they could have put more in. And uh, yeah, it was insane the harvest. And the press when you pr- they pressed the year before, it was just like trying to squeeze any juice out of these little puny grapes, and they got maybe two hundred liters of wine. Um, Last year, the the press, they you barely had to blow on them and they just were popping. They were just so, the harvest was insane. So, uh, Chapel Down, yeah, came about because that they were they're a large company. But the other amazing thing is that Josh there head winemaker has like crazy knowledge. So, he can talk to you about thiols and uh, different grapes and specify the sulfur concentration that we want to use which is minimal because we were looking for the wild yeast Mm. and he can be like okay i'm going to put in this much because it's going to go brown if you don't put in but like you'll still get wild ferments and being able to text him be like this is not fermenting what's going on he's like just give it two more days it's like it smells like vinegar it's like it's fine if it happens at the start if it's like ethyl acetate at the start it's fine if it happens later on you got an infection so like things like that that we don't like we're it's completely different uh fermentation to what we're doing in a brewery, so to have that expertise to be able to ask someone like this is not fermenting what's going on like I'm used to things kicking off with when pitching yeast or even using dregs or barrels kicking off you know pretty quickly, whereas we're working with something that we don't use, which is you know just trusting wild yeast to you know obviously like Johnny' doing uh, like somewhat spontaneous stuff and using you know there's a certain aspect like you said patience and with, with wild cider as well that kind of like it's not fermenting and it's been two weeks like most people would think just going to stick some yeast in there like so yeah it's been the, the knowledge base and the fact they can actually give us some grapes is, is pretty good
0: and you're using the, was it the Bacchus grape variety
3: first year the beer that we released a few months ago was called Sense of Place it was 50% uh, Pinot Noir uh, juice and actually skins but the colour just dropped out and then The next year, we'd use Bacchus, which is a Germanic grape variety that does very well for still wine in the UK. So, like, yeah, most of the, if you get a UK-grown still white, chances are it's probably going to be Bacchus, which is somewhat Sauvignon Blanc-esque, a lot of, like, catty... Yeah, so it's quite aromatic. It's got a lot of similarities to, like, catty... uh, So, like, Citro would be, like, a a comparable hop, Maybe, maybe, or like Simcoe. Mm-hmm. Um, I when we were we were pressing when we were adding the juice last year, I was like, this smells so catty, mm-hmm. uh, like really Ribena, like ribey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, it's it's a really and it's cool to that we have like that's a actually an amazing grape variety that um, it's really tropical and it does really well and we don't drink much of it in this country, like mm. but still, back as white wine. Mm. Um, Bringing it back to you,
0: Johnny, um, I, I understand that... Um, I want to talk about terminology a bit because I understand that uh, a cider uh, and beer hybrid is, is, has a name, it's called a graph. Uh, how do you think that terminology like that could be helpful uh, in explaining to drinkers what, you, what you're
1: trying to create? Is, is terminology useful? Um, well, certainly, in terms of yeah, giving someone an idea of what they, what they uh, might have in front of them. Um, we, we haven't used that term. We didn't really think about it to be fair, um, I don't think uh, um, uh, but it is something which is always difficult for us is is, is working out how to explain all, all of our beers not just the hybrid ones uh, to people um, so uh, if, if you know the more the people are starting to do these hybrid beers then you know, it probably it makes a lot of sense to bring these tones back and uh, uh, you know kind of slightly more formalize mm. this, did... this is the thing I'm you... having to call it hybrid beer cider, which is all bit. Yeah, I yeah. think Foxpick
0: was a nice name because it was uh, the Fox Foxwell Apple. Yeah, and then uh, and then it was a lambic style beer. But you can't use the, the term lambic. Cool. Well, you could, but you get a phone call from from yeah. Frank. Exactly, and he yeah. will uh, tell you yeah. off. And a formal email. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. What sort of uh, terminology do you think is out there uh, that might be useful? How, if you were labelling up a beer and thinking, I need to explain this beer to people, what's your thought process there, and how do you think? Uh, you're going to explain it to the customer
1: yeah well badly generally is all how <laughs> we do it um yeah it's long-windedly um or trying to not be long-winded but because there isn't an easy uh, uh, go-to word which maybe graph is probably a very good idea <laughs> uh, to use but uh, uh but i suppose at the moment there's not a big knowledge of that so it kind of needs some <laughs> education uh from from somewhere, which probably is just more people making it if more people make it and call it craft then there'll be an understanding in the public that that's what it is and then uh yeah, then we're and we're gravy but um yeah, it's something we 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 constantly kind of think about and I've almost, almost gained towards giving up on trying to call it anything just like we're just like this is our beer it's called this name and but uh you know now that we've had a few beers out people start to get the idea of like this is what we're about, and so mm-hmm. we can uh, it's because we, because we make very small quantities, that the people who are buying our beer, I think mean, we generally know roughly what to expect. Um, Web, if,
0: websites breaking mostly these days by the sounds of things. It's silly <laughs> at the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when you're trying to share you know, 400 bottles around round the country and abroad. And it's just like, well, it's gone. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, I know that Graph yeah. is, um, is for beer and cider, and Braggart is a beer mead hybrid. Is there a, a beer wine hybrid term? No? Anyone know? I, I don't think there is. Maybe we could invent one. No.
3: There's there's not. <laughs> there's, uh, like, I mean, <laughs> from doing that project, I mean, there's now I think 12 or more breweries involved and it's still every time just referred to as beer-wine hybrids. Uh, I worry about HMRC. Um, it's quite a weird one. So like these hybrids, it's like, it sounds fun to make and they are fun to make, but you have to be really careful with where you put it so, for example, cider has, like, X amount per year duty-free. So, in some cases, if you were to do a beer-cider hybrid, it might be beneficial to call it more cider than beer. You might save some money in duty. Whereas uh, making the beer-wine hybrid, if if I fell into the wine category, it's going to cost a lot of money to make that. And even just... Why you keep it the 51% yeah. yeah, barley. Yeah, so... And <laughs> by sugar concentration, not volume. Mm. Uh, yeah, because... They, the HMRC aren't set up to, to have these and I think it's the same with uh, when you fill barrels now with, that contain spirits. If you've got to register
2: them and do all that. Probably you know, because someone
3: asked them and said, what, do, what, what happens when I age a beer in a barrel that's had bourbon in it and it goes up and they're like, okay, well, we don't know. We'll just charge you at spirit rate and you're like, why did someone ask? Yeah. So <laughs> if
1: I, it was, I think it's full
3: yeah, so it's fillers. Yeah. Thanks, fillers. Yeah. Um, but same with uh, you know, I had a call from someone who's doing the, the the same project as I did last year, asking me because they were freaking out about HMRC. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I just I stayed well aware, well away from the use using the word wine hybrid on the label. So we called it a, a golden ale with Pinot Noir in wine barrel, mm-hmm. and the description said that it contained forty nine percent. But if I put that it was a beer wine hybrid, or worse still phoned HMRC and said, what do I pay duty on this? They'd be like, we don't know. Probably the most that we can ask. (laughs) Probably wine. So, yeah. And we we brewed a graph, and we called it a graph, and believe me, it did not sell well. (laughs) Because people were like, what the hell is a graph? I mean, I think it would have been better to call it a beer wine. I think, yeah,
2: that's the whole beer needs vernacular for this entire sort of category. Um, You know, um, at, at Brew By Numbers, where I used to brew at, we... Probably one of the first people that brewed a grizzette four or five years ago. Good luck selling a fucking grizzette. Like, everybody asks, oh, what's a grisette? And then you got to explain. Mm, I'll take the IPA. Um, and you just have to go through that again and again and again. We called it a table saison, and then it flew out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think we need kind of uh, some sort of uh, across-the-board for wild hybrids slash spawn, all that sort of stuff. There's just no wording for it outside of Lambic and goods. That's pretty much it. Yeah. How do you plan on explaining uh
0: the, your seasonal beers to customers if you're using uh you know uh, fresh produce? How how will you put that on a label and then make your drinkers understand what you're trying to do?
2: Uh I mean it's tough. We try to tell a little story, sorta of with it, like this is where it comes from, this is why we do it, this is why this is Got carrots in it, but it's purple, not orange. Um, but you can only tell that in fifty odd words that you have on the side of your can. Um I really don't know. It's gonna be a exploratory sort of thing. Um it's like people are very used to that. They want perfect fruit and they want that fruit during that season and everything year round, but it's not a year round sort of thing. So I think we tried to explain it early days. Um, when we were talking about the beers that we were going to make, we kind of laid it out as, like, four-odd beers. We want to make fresh, crisp, clean beers, like our pills and stuff like that. We want to make agriculturally-driven beers from our local terroir, and then we're going to make spawn beers. Um, Then just slowly, by bit by bit, I guess. Fantastic. Johnny,
0: who do you think the customer is for for a a wine-beer hybrid? Uh, Where where should people expect to see... These beers, and where would you like to see them?
3: It's tough. Uh, I think, as a brewer, you think that everything. I mean, in my opinion, that that beer, which I still call it a beer, even my, I guess it's fifty, it's more beer than it is wine. Uh, to me, is one of the best beers we've made, um, but sales haven't been great because it's harder. than in our head, it's like this beer is awesome and you should try it but people are a bit confused as to where it goes i want like like you said earlier getting beer nerds to try natural wine and ciders is i think a lot easier than getting people who are from experience maybe not entirely true you go to the the cool wine bars in east london and it's always Cantillon is the only thing that they associate with in the kind of beer world it's like oh yeah wine's great natural wine and Cantillon. and you're like what about boone i don't know what that is they're like, what about Dreyfuntine? And it's also awesome. They're like, yeah, but Canteon's really rare, and that's cool. And it's like, okay, do you actually like the taste of it, or is it because it's rare?
2: a
0: If you go to a wine fair and the the, the winemakers that love beer all wear Canteon T-shirts yeah. and
3: hoodies, right? Uh, so getting those guys to to try hybrids, it's like, for them, it's like, why would I try something that tastes less good than wine? Because, like, whereas I think that is, like, a kind of attitude. It's like, okay, it's like it's like wine, but, like, back with like beer. Why would I think I you'll see a big
2: movement of that of um, I th- for 98% of the population if you knew what went on behind the scenes of winemaking. Everybody thinks winemaking is stomping on grapes and it's like looking through a sight glass and doing all that. Of But like wine is far more industrialized in a broad sense than beer is. Um, it also uses Isinglass the same as yeah, Isinglass, Sulfurs fucking super purple like all of these things that these big like Rothschild vineyards and stuff like that that you think oh this is very pure but that's why you now have a backlash of the natural wine world of like you kind of work with what you got in the season you use the funky shit on the grapes and that's where stuff goes mm-hmm. um, and it's not going to be the same year on year out we had 400 bottles last year. This year, we've got 300. Shit happens, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's agriculture. Do you think that hybrids,
0: uh, and this is, I'll open this up to all three of you, starting with you, Johnny, do you think that this, the styles of, of beer that, that you guys are making and aspiring to make, do you think this is how uh, we do convince wine drinkers to start taking beer more seriously? Because there are, realistically, there's actually a lot more wine drinkers out there that are engaged with wine than there are beer drinkers engaged with beer.
1: It's a massive audience think we can win some of that? Uh hopefully so. You know this is, it it makes sense for it to be the stepping stone over if they if they generally don't appreciate beer for whatever reason and uh, then yeah then you know the the flavors are are you know are a halfway house and it, uh yeah can just hopefully show them the interest of the different flavors you can get from beer and then you know stepping stone then they can have their canty on mm-hmm. and then they can move to you know the rest of the the world fermented uh, beer world uh, and, and onto the rest I guess um, yeah.
0: how about you Bates
2: um, I mean I think it's a long tough road um, going to slightly be the kind of Newton philosophy of standing on the shoulders of giants um, I bow to Johnny and Jen for trailblazing it and like it is amazing to see that it is so
1: taken on by the public and stuff um, we're uh, when we started, we you know we didn't know if we were going to be able to sell even the small quantities we were going to be producing in the UK. We were like genuinely thinking we're going to have to start exporting quite quickly, I think, because there's only probably like this is probably 2015 when we're you know doing our first brew and starting to think about it, and uh, we're thinking uh, there's probably like one or two bars slash bottle shops in each major city that will take some, and then. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I, and that's yeah, uh, um, it. And then like three four years later. Yeah, I'm
2: yeah. raring to get in because it's been a long hard road for us to build our place and stuff. Um, but it'll be people like yourself, uh, Trantner down at Burning Sky, the guys at Colonel, um, who have been championing it sort of on the side because it couldn't be a mess sort of market thing they had to make other bears
0: these guys are fine as well they're, they're fine, fine with reveal origins. they're releasing a three-year spontaneous blend soon which is really exciting so it's happening
2: yeah i think it'll never get the traction of uh, i'm not going to fool myself it's not going to replace pilsner next week there's no way um but the more and more it gets accepted and seeing things like your releases your releases at tempest and people are accepting it getting
3: to it you know it's cool. It's good.
2: I like it. Cool.
3: What, do you, what about you, Johnny? I think the hard thing is that the beers we're talking about, I think beer... It's a niche have, within a niche, isn't it? So whenever I start, we, we've we poured beer uh, a few times at Raw Wine Fair in London, which is like uh, around the world. I think they do LA and Berlin as well as a natural wine fair and a Colonel and stuff have poured in the past and Red Church and they tend to invite uh, people who kind of do kind of interesting beers and we took uh, beer wine hybrids, and we took uh, beers that were really wine-like, and had been using uh, like funky kind of flavors and trying to mimic them, and presenting them to winemakers. And uh, what we got from them was, I just want like a lager, like I just want a beer, like. And then telling me, it's like, you know what's great? After tasting wines all day, you just want a beer to reset the palate. I'm like, okay, because it's this beer took me two years to make and it's as like, complex as your wines and it's kind of frustrating because like, to them, beer is a, is, a, is a lager and beer is not considered to be... like When we think of beer people who are coming to this talk, people who come to FineFest, you know, beer is, can be all different colours and it can be funky, it can be clean, it can be crisp, it can be 10%, 5%, 3%, whatever, but most people's idea and a lot of people who drink wine as their go-to drink don't think beer can be dry, low bitterness, sour, for example. So it's hard to, like, so some people even just describing beer-wine hybrid, is like, well, you've put lager in a beer, in a wine, sorry. It's like, no, no, it's like it's co-fermented, there's, you know, it's, it's funky. It's not even necessarily funky. The beer we made the first year was wild fermented and it's super clean. It tastes like uh, champagne. Uh, so, like, it's, they'd love it. But it's getting them to try that is the hard thing without just spending the entire batch just trying to do to open them up and be like, try it. And I buy one. They're like, Okay, well we're not gonna sell any if we have to convince every single person to try it before they you know, they buy it. So it's 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 tough and I don't know how we can apart from keep doing it and hope that each year, like they with that terroir project, for example, the first year is seven breweries, then this year the one we're releasing in September will be 12 breweries and I think next year there's like 25 breweries coming on board from around the world so not just like at the start they were like Californian breweries New Zealand UK and it was like okay well at least they're considering the UK grow grapes but like if you can get breweries from I mean we grow grapes in Wales Uh, so like there's now that they start getting people involved from all around the world then if that movement keeps growing then yeah we can hopefully convince more people that this is a, a new category maybe give it a name and then maybe down the line, it'll be a thing.
0: Um, before I hand the, uh, th- this over to a bit of a Q&A, in case you've got any questions for our panels, I just want to ask one more question. And what, what are you working on at the moment? What's the next releases uh, from all of you? What's, what's really exciting uh, you at the moment? Starting with you, Johnny.
1: Uh, well, on topic, the next beer we've got coming out, beer wine, uh, sorry, beer-cider hybrid, is another Tom Oliver collab. Uh, so next weekend in Bristol was something called the Cider Salon. Um, which is a, a, a wonderful side of festival uh, and we're we're taking uh, uh, another kind of half half we made a, a red wort best um, part two years ago now um, same deal took took it up to Tom's put it in barrels uh, used uh, the Dabinet apple uh, this time which is kind of uh, I, I'm learning I'm learning this stuff but Dabinet is quite of a you know, big tannic uh, bold uh, uh, kind of it's robust. the classic West Country yeah. uh, Herefordshire cider apple, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's your, it's your, you know, it's your massive Shiraz of mm. the cider world kind of thing. Uh, uh, so yeah, and made a pretty strong work, uh, and it's come out with kind of eight, I think eight point two percent aged, aged in a mixture of old, some of the old cider barrels and a few uh, uh, whiskey barrels in there as well. So uh, and that, that's come, that's been in bottles since January, and uh, is now good to go. So. Uh,
0: Bra- breaking the websites of independent bottle shops soon. <laughs> How about you, Bates?
2: Well, I didn't want to reveal it here, but we've made a 25-year-old 20, <laughs> spontaneous beer that I made when I was 10. That we're going to release. No. Um, unfortunately, while we're still building our place, I go make beer at other people's places, and they oddly will let you bring carrots, but they won't let you make like mixed firm beer in there. But... Um, so we just got a couple of sort of standards and it's kind of drawing up the reins a bit because if you don't know we're doing a big project refurbing place that looks a lot like this um so we have a west coast ipa and then we have a rebrew of our pale ale turtles all the way down um with a different hop different wrist different yeast um That will be the next thing, but then we also did a collaborative brew um, with geraniums from a local farm at our place uh, up around Norfolk, and they're in Durham. Um, So we'll have a small pale ale that's got uh, like rose and citrus geraniums in it uh, that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, But yeah, um, won't be able to start releasing the funky stuff
3: probably for another year or so. So okay. We'll look forward so, to that. Yeah. How about you, Johnny? What's coming out of Tempest? Uh, so the, in terms of hybrids, um, the next few weeks I'm emptying some barrels that we brewed with Kampai Sake Company in Peckham, uh, which is really cool. So they, uh, when they make sake, they there's a lot of stuff. It's that, that, that's, that's one of the interesting things about doing these hybrids is learning crazy new things about fermentation, koji ferments and stuff like that. I mean, what they're doing at like, Empirical Spirits and... Over in Copenhagen is crazy, uh, but we took when you when you when they take the, uh, the the sake, which is fermented on, it's like a co-fermentation and malting and from enzymes and all sorts of crazy stuff going on all at once. Uh, when you when they get the, the cider off the, they filter it basically because so it's still got the rice grains in there. They make a product called kas, uh, sake kasu. Which is the spent uh, yeast enzymes, all the rice kind of like that's all been mushed up from the fermentation, and they usually use that to like marinate uh, marinated meats and stuff so it breaks the enzymes break it down and make it really tender, and they sell that on for like ten pound a kilo uh, to restaurants and they use it, but we use that just to ferment a word so it was actually like fermenting on solids, which is a really weird thing to be putting in. A, so we opened the manway of the of the FE and we we're pouring in the the yeast, but the yeast was bags of solid mass that we hoped still contained. We'd done experiments in the lab and we knew they would work, and we fermented at different temperatures, different concentrations of casu. Uh, um, but we went for the max. We did like fifty kilos in nearly two thousand liters and fermented it like a lager, so like quite cool fermentation. <laughs> And uh, because of the enzymes in there, it f- ferments to bone dry. But there's a lot of weird stuff with sake that produces a lot of e- amino acids and fatty uh So it, it it's bone dry, but it like when you have sake, it doesn't. It feels almost slick, not in like a diacetyl or like a pediococcus way, but like it's got rich fullness and it's super umami. So yeah, we put that in the barrel for a few months just to to put it somewhere rather than being stainless and maybe get a little bit of oak and a little bit of tannin. But the main thing is that it, it's like a 6.5% hybrid with, fermented entirely with the residual stuff left over from sake, so. Yeah, I think that's a big thing, like, is using byproducts. Um, the geranium beer I just
2: spoke about, that was from a farm that grows the flowers for, like, fat duck and stuff like that. They want those flowers. The stalk stems and leaves are still full of oil, and they typically throw that on their compost they sold it to me and like we put it into a whirlpool and it's like using like byproduct stuff like that. I think the style of beer really represents it. It's great.
0: Fantastic. Uh, we've just got time for a couple of questions. Does anybody have a question for our panel? I'm going to come down with the microphone.
5: Okay, so this is slightly rambly. Bear with me. Considering the PR and marketing ramifications of you're basically entering into an environment where your mainstream audience understand a beer inside a hybrid to be a snake bite, how would you go about getting around that, driving the understanding? And is there essentially a mainstream kind of vibe for it? So I know Chapel Down have got the Curious Brew, which is a champagne-yeasted lager beer thing that won like gold awards and things. Is there that broader market appeal and how you know, kind of like creating these things, making them, uh, is it that there's a drive to make them more accessible or is it that then it needs to be a drive towards education or is it that it needs to come from somebody slightly bigger to drive a broader understanding through like marketing and things?
1: Uh, for, I mean, for us, yeah, we're probably not the people to hit the broader audience because we're only ever going to be tiny volumes. Um, but, uh, it, like,
5: will it open up spaces, basically, is kind of, I
1: think, the question. Okay, yeah, I mean... Uh, they 're fundamentally delicious drinks I think these uh, these hybrids, so I think hopefully you know this will carve out space for uh you know the more the more these drinks appear on the market and uh you know, the more different different delicious things come out, the more you know uh, the knowledge will spread of them, and more people will then kind of uh, jump on and have fun with it uh, i suppose um, uh, my my favorite description is uh yeah fancy snake bite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, that was the play on words
0: that uh, Thornbridge used, wasn't it? When they did Serpent, it was a beer-cider hybrid, so they called it Serpent, because it's snake bite. Very good. Never (laughs) realised. There you go. Uh, Any more questions for the panel? There we go.
4: It carries on with what we're talking about, about the access of it to the market and how people understand it. The majority of these beers come in at a massive premium, We're talking about the premiumized experience of enjoying them with the 75 CLs and how that crosses over the wine market, which is really nice to see, but it minimizes the people you can have to drink it. One of the big things with the natural wine market is the notion of SWAF and taking these often neglected ingredients, particularly with the grapes, varietals that wouldn't normally be drunk um, and wasted or distilled or something like that and appreciating them for what they are in a very holistic approach to agriculture and farming and therefore bringing them out into the marketplace at an affordable, enjoyable price and accepting that they're not perfect and polished, but they can still be enjoyed. That brings it back to the bear hybrids at the moment that are happening. They're not doing that in any sense. So when we're getting frustrated that they're not being engaged with by these other industries, it comes down to that cost of it that's potentially saying, all right, it's an experiment and therefore it's moving something forward but it's putting on a pinnacle that's potentially necessarily if you want to see people drinking every day. How do we work around that?
2: Well, I think that is... Uh, you're going to have to build that from the ground up because, um, unfortunately, our distribution system in the UK is a bit fucked up. Um, the fact I know what I sell beer for, I know what probably they sell their beer for, And there's a very common marketplace thing of I have to put my 70% GP on things. And life can't happen like that, you know. Um, And so it's that sort of thing of um, I would very much like to make it very accessible. Um, One of my goals, and maybe don't hold me to it, but I'd like to make a four-pack of 375 fooder fermented straight saison that I could sell for about 15 pounds. Because I would like to get people into it. it, it Yeah, yeah, and it's that sort of thing. Um, It's it's just a it's a very messed up sort of system. Like uh, we're often the people that get shitted on about the cost, but like it costs what it costs us to make it. But then once it leaves our brewery, then you have this whole screwed up system of uh, aftermarket selling. I know Johnny's beer like it's like you know finding unicorn teeth, and then like once it hits that secondary market, who knows? Yeah. Um, it's like
1: we've we sell beer for like generally we sell it for kind of five six pounds a bottle, maybe seven for our spontaneous ones, and uh, that quickly hits twenty thirty after it's gone through a distributor and onto a shop kind of thing, and uh, so yeah, which is which is like for us we kind of we try and keep it at, obviously, a price that needs to work for us as a business. Um, uh, but we don't want it to be more expensive than we would pay <laughs> for
2: yeah, it. And that's, yeah, and that, that's not the shit <laughs> on, like, the lit. other tiers or anything. Like, I'm wholly grateful about a lot of our distro and stuff like that, and most of them are making marginally anything over that. It's just always the pubs and the bottle shops often think that then they must sell it for that. And... I don't know. I don't know what the fix is. Um, I think that's why you see a lot of breweries going straight to, like, web shop selling and being able to, this is what I want to sell it to you for because this makes me money back for my beer, um, and it also sells it to you at a fair price. Yeah, there definitely needs to be that. Well, there's definitely. There's good, yeah. Yeah. I think
0: that's a a great question. Thank you very much. And I think that's a really good place to end it. So please uh, uh, put your hands together for our panel, the two Johnnies and uh, Pates. Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you're able to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider making a monthly donation via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash pellicle mag. Remember to subscribe and if you can, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host Matthew Curtis and you've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast.